All right, if you've got your Bible or a phone or some device, you'll be looking at the text with us. Um, we'll be in 2 Samuel chapter 16. So if you haven't been with us before, if it's been a little while, um, we're typically working through a, a book of Scripture, um, just kind of chapter by chapter. So we've been in First and Second Samuel now for several months, working our way through this story. And it's, I think it's good for us to be reminded this morning that it's, it's telling stories on multiple levels, right? Like there's this story that is moving forward that is, that is the history of Israel leaving the period of the judges and having a king. And then the, the passing on of, of who will take the throne. So we're seeing just that story, that piece of history. We're also seeing this larger story of God moving redemption, right? Like that He has told David, your, your throne right, is going to be forever. Right? And we know that that's seen and found in Jesus. And yet we have a mess on our hands. Right? And so there's the, kind of the question of, okay, we see the history moving forward. But we're also going, how is God going to redeem and rescue the mess that is currently taking place? Because in David's sin, um, in his um, not always trusting the Lord, he has been forgiven, but we're seeing tremendous consequence of his sin played out right now across the kingdom of Israel, right? In, in almost every sector, it's, it's being affected. And so last week, as Paul preached, um, we, where we left off was Absalom, David's son, right, has basically staged a coup. He's turned the hearts of the men against David, and so he has led them into the city. David and some of his supporters and followers have fled, right? And in the midst of, um, of having fled, David has set up a system of spies to help bring back information to know what Absalom is doing, we see David is still, he loves his son, he's compassionate for his son, and yet we have a fight for the throne going on. And so there's, it's, it's, it's ugly, it's difficult. Um, Absalom is angry at his father for his passivity and not caring well for his sister. And, and so this has now come to a head where the son is looking to overthrow the father for the throne. Listen, this is a section of Scripture that if you're one that tends to, to read through over the course of a year, you get to these stories, and the names and the, the information can just become overwhelming, where you're like, I can't keep it straight. Um, even in the couple chapters we'll look at this morning, there are nearly 20 names, right? And you're, you're trying to go, okay, I need a flow chart here. And you get the idea of when you watch like a historical show, right, and all the backstories, it's, it's all setting up scenes. And you can only move so much story forward with so many characters. And, and so we're going to have to kind of work, but don't get bogged down in that this morning. We're going to work to keep that as clear as we can. So let's begin in chapter 16, uh, beginning in verse 1. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mahibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, a hundred bunches of raisins, a hundred summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, Why have you brought these? Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat, the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, And where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel 
will give me back the kingdom of my father. The king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mehibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me find favor in your sight, my lord, the king. And when King David came to Baharim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shema, the son of Gera. As he came, he cursed continually. He threw stones at David, at all the servants of King David. All the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shema said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood." So David and his people, they're headed out into the wilderness. They're, they're fleeing Absalom, kind of reevaluating the situation. And initially, uh, Ziba meets them in the wilderness. And if you remember in 2 Samuel 9, we first met Ziba. He's the servant of Mehibosheth, who was um, the lame son of Jonathan, who in a, an attempted um, fleeing was dropped by a servant and his legs were mangled. And so he was a descendant of Saul that David showed extreme care and, and grace to, brought him in and said, you can sit at my table forever. Right? This beautiful picture of the grace of God bringing in those who have been rebels and opposed and are crippled and allowed to sit at the king's table as sons. And so here's his servant coming out with um, refreshment, right, with food. And so David goes, okay, wait a second. Ziba, you serve ultimately the house of Saul, the former king, why are you here? And if you're here, where's Mehibosheth? And do you notice what he says? He goes, listen, the king, Mehibosheth, in verse 3, remains in Jerusalem, for he said this, today the house of Israel give me back the kingdom of my father. So he's saying that Mehibosheth is back there going, right, the throne's going to be taken from you and it's going to be given to me. Like Absalom's not actually going to take the throne, he's going to give it to me. Now listen, just a little bit of a spoiler. Um, we're not sure if this is true. Right? We're going we're gonna to have a conversation in chapters to come with Mehibosheth. But David believes it. And so he says, okay, everything that I gave him, right? Like this is an act of betrayal that David has seen. And so he goes, everything that I've given him is now yours. Like, thank you for taking care of us. And in the very next scene, beginning in verse 5, we have another from the house of Saul. Right? So he's had two interactions with people from the house of Saul, the, the previous king. This guy, they're walking along basically a ravine, right? And so he's wise enough that if he's going to hurl insults at the king to not be right there by him, right? So there's a ravine. They're walking on opposite sides. And so as he's watching King David and his men, his mighty men walking, he's walking step with step, right? Just yelling, cursing, calling him names, throwing rocks, basically offending the king. And, and so we're, we're going to see what David's response is here. So what this man has done, right, is he has taken the, king, the kingship seemingly being removed from David and going, it's because of the way you treated Saul. But what we know is that David was actually very gracious to Saul, that he was not guilty of taking anyone's blood in that regard. Right? Now, he is guilty right, in, of Uriah's death, but not in, in regards to taking the throne. 
And so this man is associating all the chaos in David's life with the wrong situation. So let's look at David's response. Verse 9. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. Right? Like you can just imagine the blood boiling of those around David like, He's alone, and he's not going to talk to you that way. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more may this Benjamite leave him alone? Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road, while Shema went along on the hillside opposite him, and cursed as he went, threw stones at him, and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. That, that just word weary, right? Like you can imagine they're running for their lives, there's a coup going on, and now even just emotionally, just the weariness that you can see in David is this man is screaming insults, and others around him are enraged and want to take the man's head. That David goes, Yeah, what he's saying isn't accurate, but I am guilty. Right? Uriah is dead because of me. Right? Like the, my son um, is angry and is looking to take my life because of my sin. Right? Like I'm, I may not be guilty of what he's claiming I'm guilty of, but I'm not innocent. And so if the Lord is disciplining me through this, then I'm willing to take it. Because what he's saying isn't completely wrong. Right? Like what? Like you, you see here the ultimate kind of trajectory and character of David. Like he, listen, he has slipped up, he has failed in massive ways. But the overall trajectory is kind of pointed at this humble service to the Lord. Because he's got disposal at his men who would gladly silence this guy. And you can imagine in that moment wanting to do it, if even as a, a substitution for Absalom, of like the, the, the hurt and the emotions that he's feeling, he's like, well, we could take out a little bit, a bit of that on this guy right now who is guilty of offending and cursing the king. And yet, he doesn't. Now, I want you to remi be reminded, last week as Paul preached in verse 31, um, as, as David is first fleeing, do you remember his prayer? He's, he told, it was told of David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. Ahithophel was a counselor, an advisor of David's. And David said, he prayed out, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. If you go to 1623, it says, Now in those days the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if, as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed both by David and by Absalom. Right, so you have this trusted advisor whose word was almost like talking to God. He now has, is a traitor, though, and is siding with Absalom against David. When David finds this out, his prayer is, God turns counsel to foolishness. Right, like it's a bold prayer. Like this man whose word is almost like going to Scripture, turn it to foolishness. 
And in the very next scene, um, Hushai shows up. And he is going to be the answer to this prayer that David has prayed, right? This trusted advisor who then he sends back in and says, listen, give allegiance to Absalom and then give word to me what's going on. So we're going to begin to see this interaction laid out. But remember this prayer of foolishness. In verse 20, then Absalom, I'm, I'm sorry, verse 15, I almost skipped it. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel with him. And when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king, long live the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go away with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom shall I serve, should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. Listen, um, Hushai is, is speaking in a lot of double entendre, right? Do you see the wisdom in the way that he's talking? Right, that, that Absalom is immediately put on guard of like, whoa, wait a second, I know you're my dad's friend. You're one of his advisors, right? Ahibethil and I obviously had worked out a deal I'm not sure why you're here. So the first thing he says, though, long live the king, long live the king. He does not say which king, right? And so Absalom goes, whoa, wait a second. Is this how you show loyalty? And Absalom, Hushai says to him, no, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. Well, who is the Lord chosen to be king? David. Right? And he's, so, but he is playing to Absalom's vanity. Right? His own pride and his own vanity of like, of course you would say wonderful things about me. Look at me, I'm a specimen. Right? Like, like that he is this vain individual. And then, again, in verse 19, so whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? And listen to this line. As I have served your father, so I will serve you. Like, I'm going to do, right? I'm going to serve your dad, even in this. And he, so he doesn't lie at all. He's just speaking truth. And, and Absalom, though, hears, you're for me. And so we continue in verse 20. So Absalom, right, he turns to Ahithophel. Give your counsel. What shall we do? David's on the run. We're here. What are we going to do? And Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all of Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof. Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all of Israel. Now in those days the counsel that Ahithophel gave was if one consulted the word of God, so was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed both by David and by Absalom. So his first advice is this. Go up on the roof where your dad first sinned against Bathsheba and in the sight of Israel take his concubines. Right, like thinking not the, maybe the wisest advice. And yet what we see happening is what God has told back in chapter 12 David would occur. 
Remember, as, as he has talked to Nathan, as he's being re- rebuked and disciplined, in chapter 12, verse 11 and 12, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did in secret, meaning with Bathsheba, but I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the son. We are seeing the word of the Lord come true. Right, David, this is, is being done publicly because of your private sin. And so this is the advice that Absalom is given. Um, remember, Ahibethel is Bathsheba's grandfather. And so what we really see here is kind of an eye for an eye. Right? Like that he's saying, listen, this was done to my family, now it's going to be done to David's family. And you can see just his, his longing for justice to be done. He's saying, listen, as you're going to sin so greatly against your dad here, like you're severing the relationship, and the people who are with you, they're going to be just like go nuts, like strengthen, going, look at what Absalom is doing against his father. Like, we know we're for Absalom, and we are against David. Leviticus 18, though, tells us this is sin. Obviously, it's an offense. He's thumbing his nose at David, but he's also thumbing his nose at God. He's offending God. And so we're not going to get good advice that tells us to go and sin. This is foolish advice. So let's pick up in chapter 17, verse 1. We're going to get into now, what are we going to do military? So you've done this, you've offended, you've, you've, you've you know, riled up people. Verse 1. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him when he is weary and discouraged, throw him into panic, and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king, and I will bring back all the people to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Now this is not foolish advice. This is brilliant advice. David is on the run. He's tired. He doesn't have that many people with him. He hasn't had a chance to make a plan. You really aren't mad at Israel. You're just mad at David. Let's take this overwhelming force, pursue him, kill only him. We'll bring back your people. Israel will be at peace, and you get to lead and rule. Like, this is great advice, actually. And for whatever reason, Absalom wants to talk to Hushai. So verse 5. Absalom said, Call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has Ahithophel spoken, shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. And then Hushai said to Absalom, This time the counsel that Ahithophel has given you isn't good. Hushai said, You know that your father and his men are mighty men, and they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Beside, your father is an expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, he now has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears of it will say, there has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. So what he's doing is he's beginning to stoke fear in Absalom. He's like, listen, you know your dad's mighty. You know he's not a fool. And when you go out there and they beat you in this first fight, because David won't be there, 
They're going to turn the people against you. And so Ahithophel's advice is wise, and yet Hushai is playing to his vanity, right? Verse 10, Then even the valiant man, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will utterly melt with fear, for all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, and those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that all of Israel be gathered to you, from Dan to Beersheba, as the sand by the sea for multitude, and that you go to battle in person. So he's getting Absalom in the fight. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found. We shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground, and of him and all the men with him, not one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all of Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we shall drag it to the valley. Not even a pebble is to be found there. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had, had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. So he, he stokes the fears of Absalom. And he says, listen, if you go, right, you're going you're to lose initially, and you're not going to find David, and, and the, the people are going to turn against you. So, Dave, or so Absalom, here's my plan. Let's get an army. Massive, huge army that stretches right from all the people. And then we'll go hunt him together. And we're going to wipe out him and his men. Now what Hushai is doing here is he's biding time. He's saying, listen, if we're going to have to bring an army, it's going to take time for this army to get here. It's giving David time right, to find a place to hide, to establish support, to make a plan. And he also says, but Absalom, you've got to lead the people, so you've got to be out there. He's bringing it to a head. He's bringing it to conflict, but he's biding time. And for whatever reason, Absalom chooses, right? We see that the Lord had ordained for him to trust this advice. And so he says, okay, this is what we're going to do. Now, the rest of chapter 17, what begins to emerge is this, is that the, the spy system that David has set up, it, it goes to the priest and then to their sons. They meet a woman, right, that, that they're going to take the information to David. And he says, listen, tell them what Ahithophel said, because Absalom could still do that. So you need to get across the Jordan tonight. Like, go ahead and push on, even though you're tired and weary. But here's the advice I gave, and it seems that he's going to take it. So, but be prepared for both. And as these spies are going out and hearing this information, right, a man sees them and quickly runs back, tells Absalom. They come looking for the men, and a couple um, hide them in a well. They, they put them in the well. They cover the well. They pour grain over it. And then when they, when they can't find them, they go on somewhere else. They send them on a wild goose chase. The two spies get up, and they head out to tell David the news. And he and his men... Um, cross the Jordan, we see in verse 24. Um, and David came to uh, and crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. Um, so at this point, we, let's look down at verse 23. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey, went off home to his own city, he set his house in order, and he hanged himself, and he died, and was buried in the tomb of his father. Like, how matter-of-fact, right, of a telling of someone's death. That basically, here's what Ahithophel, because he was a wise man, here's what he knew. You didn't go get David. We're going to lose now. 
and I betrayed the king. So I'm going to die one way or the other. So he goes and gets his house in order. And I think it's important for us to remember that Scripture often is simply describing what is taking place. It's not prescribing. It doesn't give any sort of moral um, statement on this. It just is telling us how he responded to knowing that he, they were going to lose. Like he, he was wise enough to know that was our one shot. We didn't take it. Um, and I'm a traitor. And then chapter 17 ends, verses 27 through 29. David is across the Jordan. He's waiting. Um, we're, we're setting up the battle. And three different men from three different regions bring him provisions. That's 27, 28, and 29. Um, they brought beds, basins, earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, lentils, honey, curds, sheep, and cheese from the herd. For David and the people with him to eat, for they said the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. Like we just see God's provision that these people are like, we are for David. And they just bring this banquet out to him to feed his people as they await the conflict. We don't know for sure that this is when this was written, but I want you to listen to Psalm 23, verse 5. You prepare a table before me, in the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David is having a banquet prepared before him in the presence of his enemies. As he awaits a conflict that he doesn't want. He doesn't want to fight Absalom, and that's where chapter 18 will go, is actually the conflict. So, but if you feel like we're kind of doing a cliffhanger, we're doing a cliffhanger, right? We, have to, we can't keep the narrative going or we'll be here all day. Um, so we're going to stop it there for now. Listen, um, Israel had an enemy. They had an enemy in the, in the king's son who stole the hearts of the people who turned their love from David and what God was doing in the kingdom to Absalom. He was impressive. He was vain. Um, it's important for us this morning to be reminded that, that 1 Peter 5, verse 8, right, written by the Apostle Peter, says this, to the church, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The church that we would not forget that we have an enemy that's looking to distract, to devour, um, the goal is to destroy, but if he can't destroy, then he'll distract. Right? Like that's, that's the goal. Listen, Absalom was close to the king. And he went out in front of the king, right, with his chariot and the men running before him, and he flattered people and he told them what they wanted to hear. He was vain and impressive and beautiful. And he looked like it might actually be a thing of God. Right? Like this is going to be the one that follows David. He's just taking it a little quicker. And the people, in large part, bought it. And they followed and they turned from the one that God had anointed over them, had chosen to be their king. And it's going to lead to death and betrayal and conflict. So listen, our enemy wants to destroy us. So Romans 6.16 will tell us that 
we can become slaves, like we're slaves to sin. Ephesians 2, 3 will tell us that right before salvation, we followed the passions of our body, right? And, and, and we followed the evil one, right, in this world. Ephesians 4, 22 will say that the old way was corrupt and that we had deceitful desires, that we know apart from Christ, right, that the devil is simply looking to destroy us and that we're glad to follow in that destruction, right? But then in Christ, we know that he simply wants to distract us from mission. Because if, if we belong to, to Jesus, then we're in his hands and we're secure. But if he can distract us from what we're supposed to be doing, of bringing honor and glory from bringing mission, right, of, of, of having others come to know God, then, then that'll do. So Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us our heart is sick and it's deceitful and it will lie to us. And so, listen, sometimes we're like, well, I just want to follow, follow my heart. My heart's not a good thing to follow, right? Like, we follow the Spirit of God. Hebrews 3.13 that says, right, that there are the deceitful, hear me read it to to you instead of trying to... Hebrews 3.13. That none of you... So exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And if you remember our time in Hebrews, right, the constant refrain that the author is saying is, listen, it's super easy to drift. Like you don't have to just make the decision one day to go, I'm going to run into sin. If you're not pursuing Jesus, you're going to drift into it. You don't drift into holiness. You drift into mundane distraction. So he's like, don't be deceived by the deceitfulness of sin. It can blind you. It can deceive you. Later on, he'll say that that sin does have fleeting pleasures, and we can drift into it. Listen, maybe this is a silly illustration, but you think about hanging out with a, a baby or a toddler, right? And they have something you don't want them to have. What do you have to do to get it? You don't just go in and rip it out of their hand typically because they're going to scream and you don't want them to cry. So you find something else shiny or that makes noise and you distract them with it and then they're like, well, I want that now. And you take the thing and they forget they ever had it. Right? Like that you distract them into wanting something else. And for those of us in Christ, Satan is simply trying to distract us into wanting something other than the glory of God in our lives. Than wanting obedience of wanting holiness, of wanting to serve and to be on mission. And He can use things that aren't going to destroy you. Right? It may not be that you're not tempted by these destructive sins or destructive activities, but instead He replaces it and goes, family. Family's a really good thing. But if we put family over God, right? If that becomes the, the, the idol that we bow our knee to, that we give worship to, no one's probably going to call you on it. Because it's a good thing. And yet, it's not the ultimate thing. God is. And so it's got to play its proper place in, in, in the hierarchy. And it's not over God. It could be money. Like, I just, I'm just providing for my family. I'm just taking care of my family. It's a good thing. No one would say that's wrong. I'm not looking for riches. I'm just looking to care for them. And yet, if, what, if money and provision begins to dictate our decisions rather than Jesus, right, it begins to become primary. And so the question for us this morning is who's on the throne? Like, who's on the throne of your heart? Like, what is actually call, calling the shots? And what are you following? Because Jesus can, could be up there, but if he's down, 
in a different slot, then something else is actually the Lord of your life. Right? That we're, we've been distracted, that we're going to make our life about those things. Listen, church, it could actually be about studying the Scriptures. If in the studying of Scriptures we become religious and not obedient, that we know things and yet we don't obey what God's asking us to do. Like, well, who's going to tell me not to read my Bible more? Right? And we begin to hold this secondary thing as superior over obedience to Christ. Worship of Christ. Who's on the throne? For some of us in this moment, here's what's happening in your heart and your mind. Couldn't happen to me. Wouldn't happen to me. And you see the deceitfulness and the destruction of pride beginning to creep in going, I would see it coming. Couldn't happen. Right? Like that's the deceitfulness of sin is that it's not always going to be this blatant display of I'm going to blow up my marriage. Right? I'm going to, I'm going to commit tax fraud. I'm going to do this horrific thing. It could just be I'm going to focus on something that's a really good gift from God over the giver of that good gift. And it's going to become primary. So it's subtle. It's deceitful. It's devious. Because we have an enemy who wants to destroy and to distract. And so we need wisdom. John 4, in that scene of the woman at the well, Jesus knows her sin. He knows her past. He knows her situation. He knows what's going on in our hearts, in our minds, our desires, our motives. And then he says, but come and drink freely of the well, right, of the water that will never stop, that will always satisfy. He's telling her, lay down the one and pick up the better. Like, let's become primary that Jesus is. Right? Listen to Jeremiah 2.13. says that my people have committed two evils. They've rejected me, and they've made, they've hewn cisterns for themselves. Right? And so the idea is that we're taking these broken pots and we're drinking dirt that won't satisfy instead of the living waters that Jesus offers the woman at the well in John 4. And so as soon as we take something, a good gift, God gives us family, He gives us marriage, He gives us money, He gives us these things. But as soon as we make those primary, we're standing there drinking dirt, looking for satisfaction, and He's going, no, it's in me. And those have their proper place, but drink from the fountain of everlasting water, and everything else will, right, will fall into place. Right? Follow me, trust me, know me. The people of Israel had been crying out for a king like the nations, and they got one in Saul, and he was a curse upon them, and Absalom is going to follow in that suit. Right? Do you notice who he turns to for wisdom? It's man, it's not God. What has David done consistently throughout First and Second Samuel? He's turned to God. Right? So Absalom is impressive, and he turns to men for wisdom, and we see that that has a limit. The call for us this morning is this, is that Jesus has overcome the world. And He is everything that our souls are craving and longing for. But church, would we not forget that in, on this side of heaven, we have an enemy looking to distract us, to deceive us, to discredit us, or to destroy us. With sin, in subtle ways, 
and in huge ways. But Jesus is overcome. So this morning, he knows your sin. He knows your struggle. And he says, I love you. Come and drink of the fountain of everlasting water. Have your eyes open to see the reality of what's going on around you. And trust that I, you can come broken and tired and weary, and I will give you rest. So would we be like David, that even in the midst of circumstances that are crushing around us, that it feels like everything is failing around us, that he says, you're making a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. Like, you're what I need. It's not to be back on the throne. It's not to be back in Jerusalem. It's not to have, not have my son hunting me, all of which I want, but I need you. And I can be satisfied in the midst of that, in the good and in the hard. That Jesus is sufficient. He is enough. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are enough. Thank you that, that your word is sufficient, that you are sufficient. So, Father, in these moments, as we pray, as we wait, as we listen, as we sing, as we respond, God, if there is sin that we need to confess, if there is sin that has deceived or blinded us, God, would you search us and try us? Would you know us and reveal that to us? God, that in our conviction that we would be reminded that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance, that your grace outruns our sin, that you will meet us with a smile and loving embrace. God, would we not be a people that would be so arrogant as to say we couldn't be deceived, but that we would pour out our hearts and our lives and our affection for the King, that we would seek wisdom from you and your word and your spirit, that we would be a people who would pour out in the midst of our circumstances, good, hard, or mundane, that you are worth it, you are beautiful, and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.